draw you, speaking of narrative propulsion, it draws you on a journey. Yeah. So that search for origins, it, it, the search is the important part, not exactly. finding the answer. Yeah. And th those dialogues, they are, they are very creative things. Uh, and there is a little bit of a tendency in in myth. If, if you look at myth scholarship, uh, there's a tendency that a friend of mine has called linguistic essentialism, which is that, oh, if you look at the name Loki, then you would go into a linguistic uh, dictionary and you would find out that in Proto-Indo-European, it's derived from blah, 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 blah. And then that is what it means. But that's not how language works. And it's definitely not how mythological language works. Mythic language is very associative and its surface associations play a, a large role. Let me just try to close this because I think- I'm yeah. No, and I think that's such a good example also. Like I was just thinking, I've been reading a lot about like the symbols that we would try to use to um, let populations, I mean, this is a very simplistic idea, but this idea of like, how do we let future populations know that radioactive material exists somewhere? What symbols will travel through time? And the truth is that a lot of words completely shift meaning by, by context in just 50 years, such that something that meant danger at one point would mean something totally radically different 50 years later. Yeah. And it's like, sexually attractive or something. Yeah. So, and also, like, so to think like we can find these original roots and then tie them to their present meaning and create some kind of bridge is so facile. It's such a simplistic way of mm. thinking. Things mm. change or changing mm. all the time. Yeah. Um, but I do also like to think of these names as being like vessels with yeah. constellations of, of meaning inside of them. Yeah. The uh, important scholar in uh, the research of Jewish mysticism, Kabbalah, Gashem Sholin, uh, yeah, uh, yeah. you know the name. I do indeed. Oh, yeah. damn! Study is 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 um is ancient Judaism into really yeah. okay. Oh, cool. <laughs> so you you maybe you even know what I'm about to say. He had this idea that the the sign is pregnant with infinite meaning. Yeah. That the the the, the, the Kabbalistic sign, which can be a word or, or a letter, or, or, yeah. is is in a sense empty but it's it, it it's yeah pregnant with infinite meaning i and think it's, it's a very awesome. beautiful image it's really interesting to so there's this very simplistic way of saying like the alphabet changes our brains it's bad but the truth is that the proto canaanite and then um the hebrew alphabet was very open and it didn't include vowels and you needed to infuse it with extra contextual information with breath with that children couldn't even read the alphabet until they had been culturally educated that they had to infuse it with their relationships it's only when the greeks come along and colonize the alphabet with vowels that it becomes a tool that can capture other people's words and cultures yeah and so i think it's also really interesting to think about this ancient jewish tradition of looking at <clears throat> At these symbols, these signs, these these um, these words as being open, always an open text. The yeah. hero's journey is essentially a closed text. And if we look at these early Proto-Canaanite alphabets, these ways of looking at symbols and signs and languages, they're always open to interpretation and necessitate the infusion of your breath. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in in the uh, uh, process where the runic alphabet comes into yeah. being, what you actually see is you see a very uh, a remarkable reduction of letters. So, huh. so the runic yeah. alphabet starts out looking very much like the Latin alphabet, 
but then it's reduced to 16 letters. And these 16 letters, a couple of them seem a little bit superfluous, and a couple of them represent a large amount of sounds. So what you really have is language becoming, uh, or writing becoming significantly more polyvalent. In, uh, of course, there are also writing standards and so on. But uh, or at least you, I would say you have a larger potentiality for polyvalence. Yeah, because you need you need the text of the land and of the relationships to read it. And then when you add in vowels and you make every phonetic sound available and you know easily dispersed, suddenly you don't need that context. It's such mm. an interesting concept for me about yeah. how the yeah the Greeks really try and just like <laughs> yeah. colonize the alphabet. Yeah, or, or you could say that that uh, that like just the fact of keeping words non a little uh, keeping them non-specified yeah. that is in itself unentropic. It keeps them pregnant to infinite meaning. In, exactly, in it keeps them sense. from getting stale and from yeah, it, it allows yeah. them to be alive, to breathe. It's yeah. like the map. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I, I spoke uh, spoke with a guy uh, recently from the <clears throat> uh, a podcast, uh, and he was he was interviewing a, a, a podcast about rewilding, and he had this point about animism. He said. Perhaps the, the important thing about animism is the capacity to change. That is the important thing because animism itself, there's been loads of examples of animists destroying their whole environments and yeah. eradicating every single you know, post-Ice Age mammal or uh, cutting down every single tree and so on. But animism has a, a very, it's a very uh, mutable form of, of yeah. uh, relating to the world and that's the point when shit goes back bad then animism has a has very strong capacity to change that was his point i thought it was uh, i really like that yeah i mean for me personally i believe in an animism of 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 uh uh generative difference that's what i always say of like the the animism of pricks and stings and bites and antagonism that the world comes into being by gradients and and, and you know tension between being um, yeah. And it's in, in feeling that tension that there are new stories that come into, into life. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So if we think a little bit about your, or think from your image of the, that we're going <laughs> to, we're going to put a chainsaw uh, to the monument. No, we're not going to do that. That wasn't, that was, I, I, no, I guess I was being a bit. A what was your word? It was pruning. It was pruning. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, or I'll, compost. We can coppice or compost. I mean, like, gosh, yeah. we'll all use one metaphor. We'll just throw it yeah. on the heat. Yeah. But the point is that it it uh, that it it uh, pluralizes, which um, yeah. I think is is absolutely awesome image. Uh, and like when I've been thinking about this, I was actually thinking, I was thinking very much. Where are the tricksters, for instance? If you look at fairy tales, like European fairy tales, I'm sure Russian fairy tales, there are actually not a lot of protagonists that are real heroes. They're probably there, you know, but they, but there's a lot of farmer's girls and, you know, the uncool boy who's a little bit crazy. And what makes them win is mostly not slaying dragons with swords. It's mostly being clever or sly or... Yeah. Often excessively kind, excessive kindness makes some sort of agent say, "Okay, well, I'll give you the magic sword or something like that." You know, so so there's, yeah. Anyway, so how do we 
And sorry, now I'm interrupting myself four times. <laughs> so if we're looking at, you know, uh, Hollywood movies that are made after the Christopher Fogler idea and you have these hero kind of Tom Cruise is playing some kind of action hero and there's a lot of explosions. And in the end, uh, uh, there's a moment of realization that is you need to trust yourself and you can do it, you know, and these kind of things. Um, how, how do we get into a pluralizing? How do we sort of inspire that? Also, just like you and me, like we're a couple of hippies on each side of the planet and we want to, you know, make change. I, this is something I'm wrestling with all the time. So I'm primarily a writer of fiction and stories. And I think that stories do a hell of a lot more heavy lifting than didactic nonfiction. And it's funny that I've become known for this kind of didactic piece of writing that I don't think actually does the work that a novel or a, st a good story can do. And it's interesting. And you know, I think that tension is generative <laughs> that yeah. I have to hold these two <clears throat> things. Um, that the thinking about the storytelling is less effective than the actual storytelling. And so I think we can, we need, we need stories right now that are lifeboats that keep us alive. I think of Scheherazade telling these stories in this adrenaline, adrenaline fueled way to keep the king from killing herself. Like the, she's like a holobine ecosystem where the 101 nights happens, but that narrative frame comes about in a kind of storytelling as emergency way. Awesome so, image. Yeah, yeah. Like I thought about like, what stories are our emergency? What stories keep us alive? Like what myths? I mean, per, for me, and I think each person, the, the, the key is to not create a homogenized universalism, that every person in every place is going to have a different emergency. And if it saves your life, it'll save someone else's life. And maybe your storytelling mode is making art. Maybe it's making movies. Maybe it's making um, community. You know, it can t take a lot of different forms. But for me personally, I think that love stories are incredibly dynamic, muscular ways of engaging people and having people ask really complex questions that people are ready to risk their ethics and their morality inside of a love story in a way that they aren't inside of like a drama or like a mystery or a thriller. That love stories let us risk our thinking. And so for me, I'm really interested in telling romances and stories in such a way that people can widen their ideas of what's correct and what's possible. Awesome, awesome. I was thinking recently about crime stories, uh, how they like, I think there's something essentially about the, the, the narrative reality of realizing something about the world. That's what a crime story is. Who yeah, did, you know? like, there's like that, and, there's like a apotheosis moment, yeah. Yeah, and that path, that spring that drives a crime story. If you, if, if you had a story like, um, uh, what's his name, Brown, uh, Da Vinci Code, Oh, yeah, Dan Brown. Yeah, Dan Brown. It's a crime story. And oh, yeah. the, 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 the ideas that he presented in this crime story, they got such an extremely wide dispersal. I, I remember reading somewhere that it was like 20% of all Americans who had basically bought into his basic historic propositions about Jesus and all that stuff. Yeah. Uh, and that is an incredible feat of impact. Uh, through a story that that is basically yeah, a story about something. So, but uh, you say love stories. In what well, way? I, my my argument is that that story is actually a very badly written crime story, 
And that the only reason it was successful is because it's hinging on a love story that has been inside the culture for so long that people were dying for that people (laughs) picked up the book. And one of my jokes with a lot of my writer's friends is Dan Brown's actually a very bad writer, but he's very good at picking up, you know, potent cultural artifacts that if we look at the stories about the Magdalene, you know, they've been suppressed in Europe, but they're in folk culture for so long. People were dying for this. He could have written an even worse book and I think it would have been a bestseller. People wanted that story. Awesome. Thanks for this. No, I, I love what you have to say. About <laughs> so this is something I've thought about a lot because like yeah. it's such an interesting phenomenon. Yeah, exactly. I, I've been like, and, and, and because also what he's saying like from a religious or cosmological perspective is he has this whole thing that, okay, in reality, religion can be much more feminine, have a much more feminine focus than traditional religion. And that is layered inside history and all these kind of things. Uh, And then of course, I think part of the history or part of his success might also be that he has been ahead of his time when it comes to conspiracy uh, thinking, because it, it is it is conspiracy theory, you know, and uh, and he's just kind of <laughs> uh, and well, I think it, it's it, the one. So he's he's definitely like ahead of his time in, ter- in terms of kind of conspiratorial, like you know the the dominant cult- culture is controlled by a shadow culture. But he's also working with some pretty standard ideas that you know if we look at the apocryphal traditions of of christianity he was working with some pretty like traditional ideas that just got suppressed when you know christianity became romanized so i actually think that we have to give him he's being much more straightforward (laughs) than i think that he's giving credit for being he's working with the gnostic text the dead sea scrolls yeah yeah cool cool no i'm i'm not i'm not particularly strong in christianity So, but Christianity is, it's my, it's my, it's my thing. So yeah. yeah. <laughs> awesome. Not um, that I like it. I'm there to compost it. Like, cool. <laughs> it's not my thing in terms of like, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not here to rehabilitate Christianity. Totally. Um, but let me, now when we're talking about making yeah. new stories, we already talked talk a little bit about the trickster weaver uh, aspect of that. Um, uh, but what about, uh, what do you think about uh, Tyson Junker-Porter, for instance, uh, the idea of right story? I've been totally inspired by Tyson, you know, and I think you've probably also communicated with him uh, that uh, when, when he talks about how that functions in his own Aboriginal society, that seems to be a social thing. There are actual elders and they're sitting around a fire. And when Tyson has, you know, been spinning his, you know, almost like these crazy indigenous futuristic dialogues where he, together with some crazy scholar, arrive at a creation story for a myth about how AI algorithms work in social media, like an Aboriginal myth that talks about how that grew out of the patterns of creation, then perhaps he can go out to these elders and get it validated. They will say, yeah, that is true. Then they have a right story. And as contemporary Westerners, we don't have that. How do we arrive at criteria for rightness? Also, as opposed to wrongness, because there's a lot of wrong story going on. Well, I always, I love Tyson's thinking a lot. 
I, and I've read a little bit about his idea of correct story and right story, but I'm not like so deeply inside of it that I can completely handle it and use it. I, I though, as someone who's disabled, who's queer, who's always wrong, always bristle and I'm allergic to the idea that there is a right story <laughs> and that the right story is, you know, and the right story always seems to be the human story. I'm interested in wrong stories. I'm interested in speaking crow badly and that perspectionism is always deeply coupled with white supremacy, this idea that there is a right story. And so I'm, I'm interested in beginning to do the work badly rather than putting it off at for some indeterminate moment when we've learned how to do it correctly. We do not have elders, but we have mountains. I oftentimes tell people, learn how to tell stories and then take them to the landscape that inspired them and tell them to the landscape. If a crow shouts at you, if a weather system kicks up, learn how to read, use your body as an instrument and learn how to dialogue with the place where you live that's actually inspiring your work. Give your work back to the environment that inspired it and learn to get consent. That you know, If you take a poem or a song to the field that inspired it and that you, know, you get stung by a bee, that's a kind of communication from an elder <laughs> that we need to complexify our ideas of who our elders are. Yeah, we don't have elder, uh, we don't have a circle of grandmothers around us to tell us, you know, gosh, that didn't work in the past. It's not going to work now. So there's going to be, we're going to make mistakes. But the fear <laughs> of making mistakes, the fear of wrong story can create paralysis. So totally. we need to speak. I also think like the, the fear of not understanding animals or other beings keeps us from dialoguing with them. Nonsense. I'm Okay, so here's my take. And this is in no way a, a, anything that's contra what Tyson's saying. Tyson is brilliant and I love his work, but I think I'm, I, I'm thinking in my own life how those words resonate, right and wrong story. I'm much more interested in nonsense, which is the type of sound making, the phonic dancing improvisation that interrupts meaning. You know, the trickster ways of communicating that aren't telling a story, that aren't doing anything, but that are interrupting your ways of, of, of operating. Like go to the mountain and try and speak mountain, try and speak crow, try and speak snake, be risk being silly and risk being misunderstood. Awesome. Thanks. So I think part of what you're talking about there would also, it also brings to mind for me, the idea of stories as relational or perhaps place yeah. bound or relationship bound. And I can't help thinking that in our time, for instance, in on the conditions of social media communication, it's difficult actually to to or you have to um, at least I constantly feel that I have to sort of negotiate between wanting to tell people stuff and sometimes thinking, oh, okay, maybe I shouldn't talk about this because it might actually be. Uh, kinds of knowledge that are uh, supposed to be in a different kind of relation, that that extreme kind of relation that something goes into if you put it on flipping TikTok or Instagram. And uh, uh, this, is, this is something I'm thinking about a lot. I'm thinking about how we, social media requires us to start feeding our body and our stories to it. 
receiving very little nourishment in return, but it kind of rewards that. So we find ourselves doing it that we mine our trauma and our lives just to keep the, the engine moving. And I think that it's very powerful to have some stories, some information about your life that you do not share online. That And there are, you know, some of my most intense animal encounters, I can't tell. I don't have consent to tell them they're not supposed to be useful inside of a social sphere. They were about the relationship and about the moment. I'm not allowed to tell them. Yeah. And I think we have to get better at knowing what things to tell and what to keep intimate. Yeah, totally. Totally. Um, but I, I, I totally, I totally um, uh, sympathize with your sort of trickster dedication to uh, to the wrong stories. But like, I would tend to say that, like, for instance, conspiracy theories, yeah. uh, where people are creating. Uh, or you could also say, uh, you could also say modern epistemology, the idea of a ruptured world where humans are locked inside their brains and, and what's out there is dead. Uh, uh, well, I mean, of course, it's the right story in the sense that it produces a lot of uh, reality. It births a lot of experience. What, but... if we, what if we complicate this idea of this binaristic thinking? My... I, what I think about is myth is healthy when it's rooted in place. And I think myth and stories become wrong or become dangerous when they're deracinated and then colonially plastered over many different ecosystems. So for me, I guess wrong story would be a deracinated story, story that's uprooted mm. from relationship and from context. So I think that's what you're talking about. And I think conspiracy theories, this is, this is something I've been thinking about a lot, which is we live in a moment in time when we receive too much information. We're connected with people who live in places we don't know. We're receiving information about trauma and violence that's, that's in places we'll never go. And we don't have, our organism literally sensorially can't make sense of that type of deracinated, abstracted information overload that we're receiving second by second every day. And so the conspiracy theory impulse is the, oh, I was reading an interesting essay, it came out of the Complexity Institute in Santa Fe. I can't remember the name of the, the essay it was, but it was saying that like conspiratorial thinking is the only way people have of making sense of this type of information. We have no other way of stabilizing this information overload. It's an incorrect impulse and it produces really bad thinking, but it's understandable why people are trying to do it. Mm, yeah, no, I, I also totally understand the impulse. Uh, like there's a lot of intrans intransparent power structures in the world. And I think look, like my take on conspiracy theories is that they are basically, they are uh, animism out of place. If, if, <laughs> if, we, have, if we have lost the capacity to read a pandemic as a subjective agent because we're modernist inside our heads. Yeah. Then we lose, then we make up other tales in order to apply intention, subjectivity and agency to it. And that becomes idea of human agents where in 19th century West Africa, when the smallpox ep epidemic hits, they read this phenomenon as an agent and they basically engaged it as a, uh, as a, as a deity, and and that actually happened with the coronavirus in uh, northern India. They uh, oh, yeah. there was a, a 
uh, a goddess was born, the Corona Devi, uh, which they uh, basically, so they basically uh, prayed to uh, Corona Devi. And you have images up there where they're sitting with uh, incense in their hands like this. It's quite, and I think that that when when that is ruptured, that capacity of or directness in engaging the subjectivity and intention important in the world, when that is ruptured by modernity, then anyway, but that's just my, my start no, ranting about my own. I love that. I love that. You know, when we, when we have all of these more psychocosmic visions, when we are ruptured from, from that way of thinking, we have to create this very simplistic human way of stabilizing chaos. Um, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. It's funny, you know, I think the first week of Corona, I was like rummaging. I was going through a lot of change in my life and I was going through old stuff and I found this old matchbox and in it, there was a tiny that I had like saved since I was like 10. And in it was a little like saints card and it was Saint Corona. And I remember thinking like, so like ah, awesome. it's like, like the first two weeks of, of, of coronavirus. Yeah. Um, <laughs> my yeah. thing is, is a kind of, to borrow the term from Shiv Watkins is a kind of micro animism, which is, can we realize that we are maybe instruments being used by, by my microbes and fungi and viruses and archaeon and extremophiles that we are part of a whole symphony of stories that are microbial in origin. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Cool. Um, I have another question, which is, uh, it ties back to your idea of, land connectedness in in terms of of mythologies and uh uh and it's a question that i get asked a lot and it's a problem that a lot of people i think particularly on your side of the pond are struggling yeah. with and that is if you want to have landscape appropriate narratives and culture and you are a settler living on turtle island <laughs> Then, uh, I mean, the logic animist uh, step would be to listen for the human articulations of these landscape connections that are the most landscape appropriate, and that would be the native ones. And that becomes difficult in our time because uh, it would uh, either become or be liable to accusations of cultural appropriation. Yeah, and I think this is, people are very concerned with right story, with correct story, with politically correct story, inscrutable story. And I think that culture, religion, narrative always comes out through some kind of symbiotic, some kind of syncretic fusion of cultures that is either antagonistic or mutualistic. And in fact, if we look at evolution, the most biological novelty are created not by forking events, but by fusing events where two species impinged by hunger, by climatological change, fuse bodies, you know, give yeah. up their old shapes, risk co-becoming. And so I think that we need to get better at risking our thinking with in. So I oftentimes say to people, if you live in a specific place, get to know make sure that you get to know the indigenous elders that you respect them that you are get that you understand the violence that happened where you are the fact that violence doesn't go away that it speaks through the land it's you know i i live on the mahikintuck the hudson river and i live in a place where the usopus wars happened and where there was genocidal destruction but it was exited from the history books 
I'm also interested that there are a lot of people who have psychotic breaks right where I live. People like crazy people seem to come here and have episodes. And for me, that's, that's the genius loci. That's the violence in the land saying, you have not put me in the history books. You've not acknowledged me. You've not digested me. I will use the instruments available. And I think that we need to engage these violent histories that have not been digested, have not been integrated into story and into inheritance. And so, yes, I think that's incredibly important. Honor the indigenous population, work to get them back their power, work to learn from them how to steward the land, how to work with it dynamically, but also engage your own organism. Go out into the land, work, learn how to forage, learn how to tend to and protect um, other beings, and realize that ecosystems are always changing. The idea of a climactic ecosystem is a colonial idea. The, the idea of an original people is a colonial modern idea, that peoples used to migrate. We were peripatetic. Mm. We were nomadic. And so- yeah, in, no, fact, uh, in fact, in uh, fact, the word, uh, or the original word, you pronounce it here, I can't pronounce it, but the original word for Mohican, if Wikipedia informs me right, it actually just means a person who lives at the Hudson River. Oh, uh, well, it's yeah. well, it, it, it's a relational talk, rather Mohican than an essential. Means, means river that flows both ways. Okay. Which is also really interesting, which is the Hudson River is a tidal estuary, which means that several times a day it switches directions. Salt water injection, fresh water. Oh, wow. And for me, that's the perfect, I live at this incredible representation of Shit. syncretism, symbiosis, the fusion of different things, and that, that we need to be able to have that flexibility. Isn't that incredible? So you can, find, you can catch a cutfish in the afternoon and a freshwater fish in the morning. Yeah, you can actually, it's incredible. You can go down to the river and see it doing different directions, different wow. times. Yeah. Wow, that's, that's, that's an amazing place to live. One amazing place. That, that must also be uh, like a, uh, a place with a, some very intense animacy. Uh, it is, but a lot, a lot of it has to do, it's kind of what you were talking about with the Nordic myths, which is we have fragments, we have inherit we have ancestors of the original Muncie Lenape people, but there's been so much violence in between, so much genocide, so much erasure that it's hard to create a complete cosmological vision. And so there's a lot of, you know, extrapolation and invention that happens. And that can be a good thing or a bad thing. I think appropriation is the is the bad story of syncretism. Yeah. I think also when, when you look at indigenous peoples uh, and how they are, uh, the strategies they're developing in order to recover traditional knowledge around the world, there's a lot of syncretism going on between them. Uh, yeah. and, and and a lot of tradition, one, one of my favorite examples is the Native American Patasho in Brazil, who have basically adopted Afro-Brazilian religion in order to recover their traditional, uh, their own traditional spirituality. Um, oh, I mean, my favorite is San Mashimon Simone in South America, who's a fusion of St. Peter, these old rock deities, Judas, like becomes this like incredibly intense animistic being who is the meeting point of all of these different figures. I, I love I love figures like that, yeah. that find a way to survive by half digesting other other beings. Yeah, There's, the, I'm, sometimes I'm thinking that the like, the important or the dis not the, the decisive response to the epistemological calamity of modernity will come from America 
because uh, the the um, the uh, the myth of monoculture in identification with land and uh, language, religion, the whole thing, that whole package is uh, is just like it it cannot. It cannot really have a, I imagine, like an actual leg to stand on in in American culture because there's so much um, entanglement. But, Maybe, uh, but I, I, you know, it's hard to know. I mean, America is also the place where we do try and create that homogenizing universalism, where we do try and create the monocrop. That there's diversity, but there's a constant effort to neutralize it. Um, I'm, I'm not sure. I don't know what comes next, but I know that I need to get better at the muscle of uncertainty. Um, yeah. yeah. And create a higher, higher capability of holding that and being okay yeah. with it. No, I, I, I regularly think, and particularly this, this uh, question that you're answering so beautifully now here with the Hudson area as an example, this, the, how do you, as a non-First Nations person, which yeah. most of us are. Like, most of us do not live in the same area as our great-grandparents. How, how do you then actually create land connectedness in, on those conditions? And uh, I think it's, a, it's, a, it's incredibly, uh, uh, like, when that answer, when that question gets properly answered, I think it will, uh, it will probably be like, instrumental in changing our culture. I think it happens, I think one of one of the desires of modernity is for legibility and for scalability, for having an answer and then being able to disseminate it to many people, yeah. and for it, having it make sense to a lot of people. And I think the answer will be multitudinous and illegible yeah. and personal. And I think that when we really have land connectedness, it will not translate. Yeah. Um, and I think that's one of the issues is we want to be able so, to take pictures of these experiences yeah. and put them on social media and have them yeah. make a book about them. But the truth is that it's, it doesn't photograph well. It's like the moon, you know, you try and take a picture of the full moon. doesn't really, doesn't really work. Um, yeah. It doesn't really that's photograph. A beautiful point. Yeah, um, totally. And I think you, uh, when you're articulating that, I'm also thinking that in a sense, like, from the people that I have contact with, I have contact with a lot of North Americans actually yeah. for some reason. Um, and uh, and I think that for instance, these kinds of land relations that are perhaps being based on, I don't know, teachings from an elder that some Euro descended North American has been in a learning relationship with decades. But the person will say, yeah, I, I put tobacco at a stone because that's what this landscape requires. And that's what this teacher of mine is telling me, but I don't admit it in public and not, and that, that doesn't matter because that's my point. I mean, the point is that practice. And I've, I've heard this particular kind of story several times, not just one time or two times, several times. And that, I think that that is in a sense, the answer growing, not in a TikTok way but in, in, yeah. in a deeply relational way. And here's here's the, th the disjunct I see between a lot of people in my sphere of environmentalism and eco-psychology is there's a real dissonance between how you actually live and then the ideas that you dispel and, and promulgate on the internet. And the important thing is not what you say, but what you do. 
And I think that's, you know, it's, it's not important to me who I know on the internet. What's important is that I know my neighbor who has a different political ideology than me, but we have a relationship so that when the grid goes down or when there's an ice storm like last year, we can help each other. And I, I just think we need, this is, this is, this has been my issue. So I've, I've gotten a lot of visibility online very quickly for ideas and it, that's great. But I also want to have a life that can't be shared and that is deeply rooted and relational and real. And I want to encourage other people to put, to feed their real lives and their real actions um, that we can talk about things until the cows come home. But if we don't live correctly, it doesn't matter. I totally agree. And I also think that, that uh, uh, the, like part of the, part of the problem of, the modern reality is that it's a mind space that is dis that is distinct from materiality and these incredible international media they are in a sense mind spaces and they're captivating they bring us too far into mind space so i think that like but this is also a little bit my own idea of animism i think that that practice actually doing stuff i think it's more important than believing in it I think it's more important. I agree. And in fact, yeah. if you're doing it, your body believes. Like, exactly. you know, and in fact, I'm really interested in how our bodies foreshadow our thinking many times. That oftentimes we solve problems with our hands before we do with our minds. Um, <laughs> and that, you know, it's the doing that's the important part. Um, yeah. Rune, speaking of, of, of doing, I need to go on my run cool. and go treat my animal kin. Um, but this has been fascinating, and I hope it's the con a conversation that continues. Totally, and thank you so much for coming on here. I think it was really, really awesome to uh, to have this chat with you. And if you can just tell anybody who got so far in this where they can find you and where they can find your books and all that yeah. stuff, and patrons support you and so on. <laughs> well, I have books. The Flowering Wand just came out. Madonna's Secret, my eco-feminist retelling of the Gospels, comes out this summer. I'm on Substack at sophiestrand.substack.com. I offer writing for free and then a lot more writing for paid um, as well as online events. Um, I'm on Instagram at Cosmogony. And yeah, I try and offer as much content for free as possible, knowing that a lot of us are struggling. Thank you so much for uh, so agreeing to contribute here and hope, hope to definitely see you around. Yes, let's, let us do some more mind jazz soon. Thank you so much, Rune. <laughs> Definitely. Bye.